I humbly suggest that the only way any administration is going to change its behavior is if there's real competition from the legislative branch, Congress breathing down its neck, demanding changes, demanding the executive branch do better, and threatening to take away the toys if they don't. It is the week of January 25th, and welcome to episode 62 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Lauren Dealey Mahler, an SI Visiting Fellow, President of Dealey Mahler Strategies, and former Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Security Council. Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director, and former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And first-time guest, Amira Valiani, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Senior Advisor to the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications. Last year, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace put together a task force to look at some of the issues that President Trump exploited in the 2016 campaign that led to his surprising win. The report is called Making U.S. Foreign Policy Work Better for the Middle Class. In it, it's very long, 90-some pages, there's a lot of discussion of middle class incomes that aren't rising, the manufacturing sector, uh, multilateral trade deals, globalization, foreign policy elites making decisions in a silo, that kind of thing. Amira, welcome to Fault Lines. Please tell us why this report is so relevant today. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Um, Well, yes, this report is very long, but I thought first and foremost, it was pretty interesting uh, because the premise of the report is that foreign policy is really rooted in, um, or, or a lot of our foreign policy is going to be rooted in how we can do better by the American middle class. And I think it's pretty interesting because it's it's the first time, at least in my lifetime, where I, I can really recall an administration coming in and grounding a lot of foreign policy and economic needs so sharply, and particularly the needs of the middle class. It's a really interesting, I think, novel take of foreign policy. And what it tells us is not just where our priorities are, but I think importantly, where our priorities aren't. So, you know, in the report, uh, there's there's pretty explicit call outs that prioritization of trade policy is no longer going to be about making it easier for large corporate investments abroad or to do business in China. It's not going to be serving financial institutions anymore. Trade policy is not going to be serving finan- uh, pharma anymore. It's really going to be built to service the middle class, which I think is a is a pretty uh, interesting stake in the ground to put out there. And, and you know, it's great that we have a administration coming in that's making it clear what their priorities are and are not. The other thing that I think is pretty interesting is it tells us that the administration sees really secular risks in our economy and particularly inequality. And it's declaring an all hands on deck effort to reverse these trends. And it's a pretty stark statement to say uh, a robust American middle class is the foundation and a pillar upon which American power rests. And we see that pillar at stake. And so we're going to do everything we can to try to uh, fortify it. So those are the two reasons that I think it's it's pretty interesting um, and relevant as we go into this new administration. Jamil, I say this report is a bunch of elite foreign policy wonks trying to solve problems that they themselves may have caused. What do you think? Well, I don't disagree that... Um that what the report itself on its face tries to do is to solve problems that it blames on the foreign policy establishment. But I got to be honest with you, in a lot of ways, this report to me feels a lot like the motivating principles behind the Obama administration foreign policy, right, which was sort of a lead from behind approach, a take a back seat, uh, you know, sort of 
let everybody else in the world take the front seat because it'll be better for us at home if we if we focus here at home. I mean, that was the core of the Obama administration's point of view. And time and time and time again, in the eight years of the Obama administration, it proved itself to be a failed foreign policy. It got us into more trouble overseas. It forced us to go back in Afghanistan bigger than before. It forced us to go back in Iraq bigger than before. Over and over again, the Obama foreign policy failed. And this document, in a lot of ways, says we really ought to go back to that, right? We really ought to focus domestically and make foreign policy work for the middle class. There's no question that at the top level, the authors of this report are right. America's foreign policy needs to work for the middle class. And that means change our foreign policy in a different approach. And there are a lot of things in this document that I agree with, but there are a lot of things in here that are just clearly wrong. For example, they say there's no evidence the middle class will rally around an effort to restore US primacy in a unipolar world, escalating Cold War with China, or waging a cosmic struggle between the world's democracies and authoritarian governments. To be sure, when you phrase it as a cosmic struggle or a new Cold War, right, or US primacy in a unipolar world, maybe that's right. But the reality is that America and Americans, and in particular middle class Americans, want America to lead in the world. They don't want us to lead from behind, they want us to lead from the front. And they're not going to be happy with a bunch of policy prescriptions, which is what this document contains, that essentially has America once again leading from behind. Of course, we should restore and reinvigorate our relationships with allies. Of course, we should modify our trade policy to reflect uh, you know, the, the modern American economy. Of course, you should invest in innovation. I mean, these things are obvious, but the underlying theme about why we should do it, because America, America doesn't want to lead in the world, is fundamentally wrong. And a mistake, and I'm hoping, even though some significant Biden advisors, including my good friend Jake Sullivan, were involved in drafting this document, that this is not what animates Biden foreign policy, because if it is, it'll be another four years of the eight years of failed Obama, and that would be a disaster for this country. All right, Lauren, let's let's talk about Jamil's last point there. Jake Sullivan's a smart guy. He was on this panel with other really smart people, uh, including uh, notably some former officials from Republican administrations. Do you think the Biden administration is actually going to use this as the intellectual underpinnings of its foreign policy, of its national security approach to the world? I mean, it's not really progressive. It's not populist. Is this something that could actually work in today's environment? I think that what this report shows us is a little bit of a shift in mindset. And I I understand that it can oddly elicit some really strong opinions to some really big words. And Jamil just gave us a whole bunch of those. But I think that what this report actually tells us about what we might expect from the Biden administration is that the bedrock founding principles of our foreign policy and its link to our national security haven't changed. We're safer at home when there's more democracy and there's more development abroad. We get that. But what this also tells us is that We've learned some lessons from the things that we've seen before, and we know for sure that what has been happening in the last four years, where we just ignore everything, we either ignore or antagonize everyone who is beyond our own borders, doesn't work, but that we're seeing such a unique moment in time where there is such upheaval and disruption within our own domestic setting that there's an opportunity here to get our own house in order in a way that allows us to be stronger on the foreign stage and that allows us to take a foreign policy position that lets us lead, but leading with people. It's not leading from behind to say, yeah, everyone in the world shouldn't hate us. That's not what makes us a leader. That's not what makes us strong. And I think that there's a lot 
that can be done at this moment in time to bring all those pieces together, not just to more effectively make sure people understand the way they're linked to their lives, but actually help people change things here, whether it's the types of jobs, whether it's you know, the types of economic opportunities that are available places, but to bring that all hands on deck approach to some of the big challenges we're facing now that allow us to then reestablish ourselves as a leader. And I think that it's when we say that people in the middle class only care about America leading. Well, no, they don't. They care about healthcare. They care about economic security. They care about their kids' future. They care about all these things. And to be able to address those issues and those concerns and those worries, which are very strong right now, with a foreign policy that synchronizes in a way that it hasn't before, I think is an opportunity that I would expect to see the administration approach. Go ahead, Jamil. So look, I mean, of course, Americans care about jobs and healthcare. That is the core of what they care about. I'm talking about what they care about in foreign policy. The American people aren't under any illusion that their foreign policy is going to drive their health care or their jobs or the like. And there are, to be sure, things associated with those things that have an impact. I think they see those. And I think the report rightly recognizes those. But Americans are, are under no misimpression, nor should we be, that leading in the world is going to make us dramatically better at home or give you a better job or give your kid that next job, right? In fact, what leading the world does is it keeps threats away and ensures that we have a role to play in the larger scheme of things. If we take this approach that they've taken, which is to not lead the American middle class to the importance of a role for America in the world and a strong leadership role in the world, if we simply take the report's approach, which is um, the government should adopt the current middle class view, which is America retreats back home and focuses at home and only has tangential relationships abroad, largely relying on our allies to do it. That is literally what we did for eight years. And it literally got us in trouble over and over and over again and got us to the position that we ended up where, where Donald Trump took us. I will not defend the Donald Trump foreign policy for anything. There were huge mistakes made, huge errors, larger than those of the eight years of Obama. That being said, for different reasons. Donald Trump also, just like Barack Obama, they're actually more similar than they were different. But Donald Trump, like Barack Obama, did not want America to lead the world. He wanted America to focus at home. He wanted to take us out of all of our relationships overseas. Barack Obama simply wanted to put all the responsibility upon everybody overseas. And if the Biden administration thinks that's what the American middle class wants or should want, they are sorely mistaken. Amira, let me shift the conversation a little bit and um, kind of go back to uh, the folks we're hearing from in this report who are very accomplished, credentialed people who uh, are clearly very bright and have and have worked on these very issues uh, that we're talking about that um, are implicated in both the Obama administration, the Trump administration, the Bush administration. But let's talk about their ability to act, actually fix a problem. These are folks who report to uh, a bureaucratic entity in the executive branch that ultimately goes up to the president who's up for election every four years. We have an entire branch of government, the first branch of government, the Article One branch, where half the politicians are up every two years. The other half, the other House of Congress is up every six years. They're more closely tied to the people. They have a better understanding of Americans' domestic and international concerns. And yet there's very little in this report that actually refers to a role for Congress or recommendation that 
any administration try to work more closely with the legislative branch on foreign policy outcomes. And notably, you see the Obama administration's signature achievements of ad- admitted signature achievements of the Iran nuclear deal and the Paris Climate Accord immediately reversed by his successor. That, of course, is also unsustainable. And so that person's successor is putting the U.S. back into the Climate Accord and probably back into some version of the Iran nuclear deal. So in, in neither of those cases was Congress consulted. Congress never ratified any kind of agreement related to climate change or uh, the Iran nuclear program. Why do you think this group didn't recommend a more direct role for Congress in the, for, in the making of U.S. foreign policy? Well, I'll say first and foremost, you know, the Constitution gives a lot of executive authority uh, and deference to the president when it comes to foreign policy. So it's not unusual that you see foreign policy does, does not work very close with Congress. I don't think it's crazy in this report that you don't see a lot of deference to congressional strategy just because Congress doesn't traditionally play a giant role in American foreign policy the same way they might in, say, tax policy. But I think, you know, what's interesting to me about this report and, and why I'd have to push back on you a bit, uh, Jamil, is I think what this does is really say that economic state craft has to be a really core piece of American foreign policy. And when we look at previous foreign policy doctrines that are really heavy on defense policy and diplomacy, I think this report is saying we have to look at economic policy as a really uh, equal pillar to how we think about foreign policy as defense and, and diplomacy. And so, you know, I think first and foremost, how do you implement this? And the report refers to this. I think you need to see a very different approach towards um, interagency problem solving. And you need to look at a really significant reorganization of how we think about the NSC, the State Department, uh, Treasury, maybe even commerce. We need to see a lot more interagency action when it comes to making economic statecraft and putting the middle class first as a piece of foreign policy. So I think when you think about executive authority and how to implement a lot of this report, it just comes back to really simple things like changing reporting structures, making sure that you're bringing expertise from people who have really strong uh, abilities to tap into what it means to be uh, to build a robust manufacturing economy, what it means to be trading, not just when it comes to uh, financial services, but also sort of people to people in e-commerce trade. I think there needs to be a change in expertise and uh, a revamping of organizational structures in the executive branch, first and foremost, to implement a lot of these things. I, I think that would take care of 80% of the problem here is really rethinking how we approach the foreign policy problem. I think it's worth noting also that that is one of the points that is highlighted in the report. It follows the exact same logic that you were just laying out so well, that a change and an increase in interagency cooperation and just a little bit more of, a, of an imaginative approach to how we've tackled these problems, breaking down the silos between domestic and foreign policy and, and defense and all of that, that those things all have to be linked together in a way that they have not been previously in order to bring together, as you said, that economic statecraft to bear on these other areas. Jamil, what do you think? New interagency approach leads to better foreign policy? You know, look, I don't doubt that bringing more people into the conversation, uh, particularly on the economic side um, and the domestic economic side, uh, can have a beneficial impact um, and make our foreign policy more relevant to the middle class. But I'm generally very skeptical of sort of government boxology. If we just had more people work together, if we just brought another voice into the conversation or create another department agency or just elevated this voice to being a deputy national security advisor or gave them more money or more budget or or more humans to do this job, then all the problems of the world will be solved and everything will be better, right? I tend to think that government boxology is not the solution, that the solution is doing more effective things. Now, this report has a list of more effective things they think we ought to do. 
I just think it's a dramatically underwhelming list of things, right? And they actually admit it. They say, look, you know, it's, it's surprising. You'd expect a bunch of people who, who did, you know, U.S. national security policy from H.W. Bush uh, to, uh, to Obama uh, to have a more forward-leaning, robust view. But we just think this is what the market can bear. And my point, I think, fundamentally is it shouldn't be about what the market can bear. It shouldn't be about what the middle class expects or wants. It should be about what leaders bring the middle class to accept and want, right? George W. Bush never wanted to be a wartime president. In fact, if you look at all of his pronouncements uh, when he was on the campaign stump, uh, he talked about America not being the policeman of the world and not going overseas and focusing in at home. And then he became a wartime president because of circumstances, right? Barack Obama talked about, you know, ending all endless wars. And yet he ended up in more wars because he, real he realized over time that pulling out precipitously from Iraq as he did, pulling out precipitously as he, or the drawdown in Afghanistan, neither of those things worked and created more danger for the country. You would hope, that this, thing, that this team, having lived through the Syria whiff, the train wreck of an Iran deal, the, the, the mistakes in Iraq, the mistakes in Afghanistan, would learn those lessons and hopefully do better this time and not, not aim low, but aim high. Again, I worry about sort of this lead from behind approach. I hope that's not what they're going to do. I don't think that's this team. Frankly, I think Jake Sullivan has a forward-leaning view for the world, even though he's part of this group and even though he wrote uh, in, in foreign affairs about some of these topics, right? I think he has a more forward-leaning view of the world. I think Joe Biden, frankly, has a more forward-leaning view of the world uh, than either Barack Obama or Donald Trump did. And I actually hope that they, that they run that direction rather than they give up and just do what the American middle class appears to want based on polling. Instead, leads the American middle class and the, and the country to leading in the world being stronger in the world and 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 leaning forward rather than leaning back and worrying about everything here at home and wringing our hands constantly, which is what I worry this this report is a prescription for. I humbly suggest that the only way any administration is going to change its behavior is if there's real competition from the legislative branch, Congress breathing down its neck, demanding changes, demanding the executive branch do better, and threatening to take away the toys if they don't. Congress controls all the money. Congress control at the end of the day, Congress controls all the policies, they may not control actual foreign relations, the conversations between our head of state and another country's head of state, but Congress controls everything else. Congress needs to get off the mat, get in the game and demand that the executive branch do better. Otherwise, they're just talking to themselves. Amira. So, yes, I, I appreciate the uh, the pushback. Of course, Congress should do, do a lot to hold the uh, executive or executive branch accountable. But, but Jamil, I want to I really want to press into what you're saying, because I don't actually read this report as backward looking or retrench at all. I think it's incredibly forward looking and it puts a really interesting stake in the ground in terms of how this administration is going to think about foreign policy. And while I was underwhelmed by some of the sections that you highlighted related to how the American middle class doesn't necessarily want to be leading in a unipolar world, I don't think that's the thrust of this report was. But, you know, it seems like what you are in agreement about is that foreign policy should be working for the American middle class. And what you say is the list of recommendations in this report are underwhelming or aiming low. Like, what would your recommendations be? How would you take a bolder approach to this kind of policy? Well, look, I think there's a range of things that you might do. Um, so if you just look at sort of you know, their summary recommendations up front, the ones they, they like, they want to highlight, you know, at the right at the beginning of the report, uh, they talk about reinvigorating relations with allies, managing strategic competition with China, reducing the threat of a digital crisis, boosting strategic warning systems, shifting defense, some defense bank towards R&D and technological workforce development, strengthening economic adjustment programs, and safeguarding critical supply chains. So who could disagree with those? Those are like motherhood and apple pie, right? Everyone agrees. The point is, they're all, they're all namby-pamby, right? Reinvigorate, manage, reduce, boost, shift some, 
strengthen, safeguard. I mean, come on. All these words. And they even say it the very next, the very next paragraph says, this is somewhat less, this is a somewhat less foreign, ambitious foreign policy agenda. That is the point. They literally say that is the point of this report. What's wrong with and, strengthening things, Jamil? Come on. No, no, strengthening no. things is good. Of course it's good. So you could say that that's like motherhood and apple pie list, but the fact of the matter is we haven't done those things. So it's not a bad place to You want us to be bolder, I guess. Exactly. I want us to be bolder. And the reason why I want us to be bolder is that the American people want us to lead. All we have to do is to demonstrate to them the benefits of leading, right? And the cost of not doing so. The problem I have with this report is not its prescriptions, most of which I agree with, right? What I have a problem with is it doesn't call on American leaders to lead and demonstrate the value and demonstrate the benefit and highlight the cost. Instead, it says, take the polls for what they are and adapt your foreign policy to that. No. Our foreign policy should lean forward. We should be strong in the world, and we should lead the country to that. The problem we've had for the last 12 years is we've had leaders who don't do that. We have leaders who want to sit back and, and, and take the polls and listen to the polls and have America lean out of the world, right? Joe Biden is a lean into things kind of guy, right? Let's do that. Let's lean into this thing. Let's press forward. Let's take the leadership role and say it's not just about domestic issues. It's about foreign policy, foreign policy it can work for the middle class. It should work for the middle class. We need to be strong in the world. We need a strong military, a strong intelligence community. We need to lean out there. We need to lead our allies, not simply work with our allies. We need to lead them. And that, I think, is something the American people will, will resonate with them. It resonated with them in, during, the, during, during the Reagan administration. It resonated with them during most of the wars we've been involved in. It, di- it does decay over time, and that requires leadership from our national leaders, what they get elected to do. And unfortunately, for 12 years, we've had leaders who don't really want to lead. Grant, ask us uh, the last question for this segment. Great. So uh, Jamil just walked into the question I wanted to ask him. Jamil, if you're right, and fundamentally, foreign policy, we need to be leaning forward in foreign policy. Why haven't more leaders in Congress, not just the White House, failed to lead? Thanks for the question. It's a great question. And actually, this is where I fundamentally disagree with Les and agree with Amira and Lauren, which is to say that the reason why Congress doesn't do a good job leading on foreign policy is because they are intentionally tied much closer to the American people in the case of the House and the case of the Senate. Right. Just internal dynamics about how they have to come to a consensus make it very hard to actually lead anybody to anything. Right. In the House, the American people want what they want. You're elected every two years. You have to raise a bunch of money. It's no surprise that they live by live and die by polls, right? The president has the not only has the constitutional authority and room to run and is given that leadership role and has for 200 years, notwithstanding Les's protestations that we should have Congress re, reconquer foreign policy, right? It's not, it's, it hasn't been the reality for 200 years. Amir is exactly right. It's the role of the executive. The legislative branch can play a constructive role, but it's nowhere near the, the lean forward part that less thinks. And with the Senate, there's too much consensus building, too much uh, cooperation needed, which actually, by the way, is a good thing for the country and helps us come together. That's going to prevent them from actually leaning forward and leading. So the one person, the president and the vice president and the entire executive branch that can lead ought to. And it's just unfortunate for 12 years, we haven't had somebody in the office who wants to lead. I hope that Joe Biden can be that leader. I, I think that the people around him are those people. I think that he was appointed, Tony Blinken, right? Uh, Avril Haines, Jake Sullivan. These are lean forward leaders. We need to give them the room to lean forward and run at it rather than simply going back to what they know from eight years of Obama, which was a complete failure. 
The question is, is not about leading. The U.S. is going to lead the world. The question is how you lead and the manner in which you do it. And the executive branch lately has had a pretty poor track record of decision making in this area because Congress hasn't been doing its job. It's in the Constitution. They're supposed to check the qualifications of the people who make decisions. They're supposed to approve international agreements. And the fact that we've gotten to this place where we have agreements of huge import that aren't reviewed by the Senate is insane. That's not the way the system was designed. That's going to lead to decisions that aren't sustainable. And that's exactly what we found. And uh, on, on the funding part, it's a little bit better. Congress actually does its job and every year gives the money for the programs it likes. There's not the robust debate you'd like to see. Uh, but Congress doesn't have to do, doesn't have to take over as commander in chief. What Congress needs to do is its job and balance the decisions of the commander in chief. That's the way it's designed. Yeah. I mean, here's, here's one place where I'll, I'll maybe lean into what you said, Jamil, which is, I think when it comes to leadership from the president, I think this is actually a great place where the president can do a bold role on behalf of congressional candidates and say to the American people, here's our case for our foreign policy and why we're taking the actions that we are for you and why we're doing these things that come back to help the middle class. And so a lot of this argument has to be made domestically as well, right? And it comes back to the national security apparatus and the president to be able to say to the American people, when their representatives are for election, here are the things that we are doing for you on your behalf. And here's how we're using American foreign policy to make sure that you have jobs, to make sure that wages are going up. And here's why you should vote for a Congress that supports that and signs on to agreements that help us drive this policy forward. I think that's a big piece of what has also been missing, not to, to downplay the substance and everything else that we've been talking about, but there has been a significant lack of the ability to make that case to just straight up communicate to everyday Americans why foreign policy matters to their everyday lives. We can explain national security and we can make people feel that and understand that. And sometimes maybe not in the most logical of ways. There was a, a lot of communicating during the Bush administration and linking national security and defense to your everyday lives that maybe wasn't as logical. But I think that the team that's there now and th setting this report aside, I mean, this report is something that was written independently by an outside group. And that's great. Here's a framework. Wonderful. Okay, now let's shift over to the people who actually have, you know, boots on the ground in these new jobs and are actually making things happen or about to make things happen and now been given the reins to do so. But the ability to communicate why not just to make the decisions, but to make people understand why those decisions matter. So you have to not just, you can't just make good policy choices and have people sitting around a room who are super smart, who are making good policy choices. You have to be able to effectively take that policy idea, that solution, that prescription, whatever it is, and you have to be able to communicate it, not just in Congress where approval really matters, whether it's money, whether it's policy authority, or whether it's just stay the heck out of the way so we can do this. You know, those are the only three things you ever need from Congress as an administration. And you have to communicate it there and you have to communicate it to the American people, whether we call it the middle class or however we refer to it. And that's just not something that link that why this matters to you hasn't been there. And that's going to make a difference on the congressional campaign trail every two years, every six years, whatever we see. That's going to make a difference for the ability of this administration to actually get anything done, whether it's going to be bipartisan barely or bipartisan all the way, it has to actually get implemented at the end of the day. So 
having the smart people and the experts with the experience in place is great. And I think we all agree that that we have that now more than we've had. But I also am confident that the people who are in those positions understand the way that full system works, that you can't just go from idea to implementation and success, that there are a lot of stops along the way. And the way that you bring the middle class into that conversation, whether you talk to the middle class to understand why what you're doing matters to them is something that I'm, I'm excited to see actually happen um, that has not happened previously. All right, let's shift to the first uh, few days and actions of the Biden administration. President Biden issued 10 executive orders on his first day, several more on Thursday and Friday, easily becoming the most accomplished president after three days in American history. We have new policies from the White House on everything from transgender issues to membership in the World Health Organization to mask wearing to gas pipelines. Lauren, will he be winning the Nobel Peace Prize soon? I think we probably shouldn't line up to uh, to observe the ceremony quite yet. Um, I think that, you know, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, you know, a, a little tongue in cheek. I get it. But I think that we are seeing something that is so starkly different from what we've seen for the last four years, that it's a little bit of a whiplash for, for those who are, who are following and who are watching all of these things, you know, perhaps as, as deeply in the weeds as a lot of us are. Um, so yeah, Nobel Prize, ah, that's nice. But I think that some really big changes within the umbrella of executive power have been made. And I think they've given us a good sense of where this administration sees the most immediate need for change and some of the starkest differences between the previous administration and where the country is going now. Jamil, are you excited or disappointed after seeing President Biden's first policy decisions? Well, look, I think uh, I think most of what we've seen from the Biden administration was fairly predictable. <clears throat> On the foreign policy front, we've seen them re-enter the Paris Climate Accord. They made that clear that was going to be a day one initiative for them. Um, we've seen a uh, attempt to reinvigorate the COVID domestic plans. Um, uh, some of the the you know the more the domestic stuff on on minimum wage uh, and and the like um, are perhaps less expected, uh, but you know not really uh, a major foreign policy impact. Um, and so so I'm not going to really comment on those. Um, and then you know we have this sort of unclear lack of clarity about what's going to happen on Iran, um, although they've made clear they want to get back in the Iran deal. Um, uh, you know, they have a tremendous amount of leverage built up given the Trump administration's abandonment of the Iran deal and, and the significant pressure put on Iran. So I think it would be a mistake to squander that and simply return to the old deal. There's a lot of folks out there advocating for that. There's a lot of folks advocating for uh, as soon as we can complete the Trump withdrawal from Afghanistan, complete the Trump withdrawal uh, from Iraq. Um, look, we should not the Biden administration should not give in to the give up caucus. Um, which is strong, by the way, on the Republican and Democratic sides um, in the House um, and, and at some level in the Senate. Um, and so we ought to not give in to that pressure. Uh, the, the Biden administration has a bunch of very smart, very capable uh, foreign policy national security thinkers. They should rely on them uh, to make smart decisions about uh, what's coming next uh, rather than simply um, uh, giving in to, to, to the, the people at defense priorities whose only speed is give up. Uh, and give in. Amira, uh, I, I, my assessment is uh, President Biden's done actually a pretty good job of being above the fray of the normal partisan battles 
at the end of the campaign, during the transition, and even now into his first week in office, despite making some, you know, fairly tough policy decisions on things that can be a little bit controversial. Do you th- how long do you think he's going to be able to stay above the fray? And I, and I think back to the Obama administration, President Obama came in, he was very popular, and you just saw the popularity go down as he had to make tougher and tougher policy decisions. How long, what's your assessment of how long President Biden can kind of keep this fairly high trajectory? Look, we're in, a, we're in a divisive political environment. So, you know, if I were to place bets, I would say it's, it's not too long before we start seeing some really partisan issues pop up and some big fights. But I think from a comms perspective, what the Biden administration has done to try to keep excitement going for as long as possible is very smart because what they did is they right out of the bat said, we have momentum going for us. You know, we're going to sign 17 executive orders in the first two days. We're going to have a White House press briefing at 7 p.m. after inauguration. We're going to be in touch with you, the American people, every step of the way. And a day can't go by where you don't see multiple executive orders or speeches or plans from the Biden administration, at least in the past few days since he's been inaugurated. And I think that's a great way to stay above the fray and really demonstrate to the American people, we mean business, we're here to work, and we're going to get through this crisis together. And so I think they're doing as good of a job as they can. And if they keep up this pace, they'll be able to get pretty far. We'll see how far they go. All right. I want to read you guys something from Bob Silverman, who is the former head of the American Foreign Service Association. Jamil and I worked with him uh, when we were on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Terrific guy, career foreign service officer, nonpartisan. He wrote, uh, this is a public Facebook post from, from Bob. The Biden team rightly attacked the Trump administration for sidelining career professionals. But to date, Biden is continuing the Trump trend in this regard, which I have noted earlier, and was a trend actually begun in the Obama years, which Trump dramatically accelerated. The reality is that the Democratic side has a plethora of policy people interested in public service, but not for an entire career that involves the apprenticeship aspects of the diplomatic profession and overseas assignments difficult on families. Rather, they see a senior NSC, DOD, or State Department job as part of a Washington revolving door career in international affairs. If we're serious, we shouldn't staff all of the senior jobs at State and NSC with politicals, some of whom are retired career folks who advised a campaign. The message in appointing the latter is leave the career ranks and go political if you want a senior job, unquote. But that is what is happening, despite the rhetoric of respecting career professionals. What do you guys think of that take? Yeah, I, I hear I hear that argument and I have a lot of respect for it. Um, I think what's difficult from, uh, so I'll say two things. One is in defense of Joe Biden. A lot of the people that are appointed to senior ranks are career officials who maybe came out in the last four years, but but have been in, in there forever. So Bill Burns leading the CIA, Uzra Zaya, Bonnie Jenkins, Toria Newland, undersecretaries of state, Ned Price, who's at the CIA, is going to be spokesperson for the State Department. These are people who are career officials. And the the difference that I think um, is being called out in that quote is, is they left during the Trump administration or right before it, uh, many of them, and then came back as advisors to the, to the campaign. Now, I think we're in a difference a different state here because the State Department, a lot of our diplomatic apparatus has really been hollowed out over the last few years. So if you're going to get really strong talent, you have to be willing to pull in people who had given a lot of their lives to the foreign service or um, career foreign policy and bring them back in front. But, you know, I, I think that's right, that we want to make sure that we strengthen the civil service um, and, and give them top jobs. There's still plenty of top jobs to get uh, to go around, but we still have quite a few folks who have been appointed who have lots of experience as career officials. I agree with that. I think the the sentiment to me behind the statement is, and it, it may be that 
it came from a place of literal specific, no, really, we should be running all the things all the time. But I think to me, the sentiment that it captures and that, that underlies that thinking right now is just the immense frustration of a foreign service that has been hollowed out, like Amira said, but, but also just scapegoated repeatedly. I mean, you know, talk about the, the anchor of the deep state conspiracy theories and just taken a repeated beating over and over and over the last four years from people who just didn't understand or appreciate the value that comes from that group of professionals and that service. And I think that that is something that, that changes without question that, you know, not only are you seeing, as Amir said, all of these folks with decades of foreign service experience lining up to take these top jobs and bring with it an appreciation for that service, but they also bring with it an explicit appreciation for the work they need to do to reinvigorate that service that has seen such an exodus, but has also just gotten so, you know, morale has been so beat down. Um, And I think that knowing that there's an expertise there and knowing that there, it's going to take a proactive effort to, to pull that back into the process and back into uh, the conversations where things are actually being decided. Um, But letting those people be back in the room where they deserve to be is going to make a big difference. And whether that's, you know, wherever that falls within the food chain, top, middle, bottom, wherever, there is a complete, it's just an appreciation for what that is. And I think this administration has already shown that they appreciate that. Um, I mean, even during Obama, I I was at the NSC with tons of, of foreign service officers that were all over the place. It's not that they've never been there and they should be. Um, it's that they need to get back there. And I think we've seen a commitment of that even from Tony Blinken during his uh, confirmation here and saying that we intend to restore career officials to the, the prominent posts that they have held before um, and to, to call on that expertise again. We'll just close on this real quick. I, I think the risk here is that career folks are kind of politicizing themselves at the tail end of their careers and as they leave. And and we really do need to guard against that. They should be able to serve the president, no matter who he or she is, no matter what party they're from. They should be able to do their job the right way for their country. That's the whole premise of the Foreign Service and the Civil Service. All right, let's go to the last part of the podcast where we talk about an issue we're following that is not necessarily in the headlines. I will go first. I'm tracking President Biden's promise that he would seek $4 billion in aid for Central America. Uh, where obviously there is, uh, there are poverty issues, there are humanitarian issues. There's an immig- it's related to our immigration challenges. I'm just going to point out that's not at all a panacea. There are some real problems with the governments in that region being able to work with us. Uh, as the last administration and administrations before that had found, Congress puts a ton of conditions on that aid as they should. Uh, and so does the administration for that matter. So there's this asking for 4 billion, while maybe it's a step in the right direction or half a step, isn't nearly going to get us to the goal of what we need to do in Central America. Jamil, you're next. Thanks, Les. Uh, so I'm following the uh, protests uh, around Alexei Navalny, uh, who returned to uh, Russia recently after being poisoned uh, by the Putin regime. Um, and it, it's actually an amazing story. Um, the protests themselves are amazing because they took place in over 100 cities in Russia, tens of thousands of protesters, uh, almost 3,700 detained by Russian authorities. You know, they braved a a massive police presence. You saw some very uh, stiff protests in a country that's fairly tightly ruled. Um, But what's even more amazing about this is how this came to pass, right? 
Uh, Navalny uh, was was on a flight out of Russia when he was poisoned, uh, was rushed to the hospital, uh, recovered. But then amazingly, in, in, in what is what is probably one of the best YouTube videos, if you haven't seen it, worth the watch. Uh, he actually gets uh, one of his uh, one of his one of the people involved in, his, in the poisoning in the poisoning apparatus uh, to sort of engage in a conversation with him. He plays a the role of a of a senior official in the Russian defense ministry um, and and actually tricks this guy into telling him about how this thing went down and over a clear line, even to the point where at one point uh, the guy just says, is it appropriate that we're talking about this? He's like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Your boss approved it. It was it is an astounding troll. Um and uh, and but then he goes back. I mean, he he didn't have to go back. He could have stayed abroad and and been that distant abroad. But he walked back into it, knowing he'd be arrested, which he was, um, and triggering these protests. Um, so, uh, you know, what a hero in many ways. Um, and this may not be the end of the Putin regime. Vladimir Putin still controls that country uh, with an iron fist. Um, but it is it does demonstrate um, uh, that his that his uh, hold on power is 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 weakening. Um, the fact that this many people are out there uh, protesting. Um, and and across such a broad swath, not just sort of in the west, where you uh, in the western cities where you expect uh, some resistance to Putin, but across the entire country, over 100 cities. So big deal. Uh, more to come on that front. Lauren. So following along the veins of some of our conversations in previous podcasts that we've had, I think that the attempted insurrection, the the violence that we saw at the Capitol on January 6th, um, I think that has significant foreign policy, national security implications long term. I think that other countries are going to be watching to see how we handle that. And the, the way that you manage that is through accountability. So I'm very much following to see how the impending impeachment trial plays out in the Senate uh, when we talk about accountability at, at the highest levels for incitement, um, whether or not former President Trump um, is actually found Guilty, whether this, how the Senate approaches and handles this whole thing is, it's all starting to fall back into partisan lines. So I'm curious to see how all of that plays out. We're seeing, you know, intense negotiations over every detail occurring now. Um, I just saw a headline since we've been talking that Chief Justice Roberts may not oversee the trial, that it may be Senator Leahy. Um, so really curious to see how that, that plays out. Cause I think the, the lack of or the, imminent accountability of those who are deemed to be responsible um, will have significant implications for our foreign policy. Amira. I'll close out with a fun one, which is you know, I uh, came across this book that's coming out or just came out by uh, someone named Dr. Avi Loeb, who's an astronomer at Harvard, and it's called Extraterrestrial. And uh, you know, Dr. Loeb is this longtime astronomer who's made it a point to get to know its neighboring galaxies. Um, and what he writes about is an object that was detected um, out of an observatory in 2017 in Hawaii uh, that's now called Moa, And it's the first object that we know of that we've actually seen that comes from another galaxy. And uh, Dr. Loeb's whole argument is, you know, this object doesn't follow any of the patterns of something that we'd normally ex- expect to stay uh, to be in the sky. You know, it doesn't appear to be a comet doesn't appear to be an asteroid. Uh, its speed is very different from anything that we'd expect to be normally orbiting the sun. And you know, one of the few explanations for that is that it's um, maybe a, an alien space buoy or some kind of piece of an alien ship. Uh, and, and of course, we don't really know what it is, but it's such a fun uh, glimpse into something that is very, very foreign policy uh, and fun to dream about that we don't talk about too much. Yeah, really foreign policy. Grant. 
This week I'm following what is being called the Year of Democracy. There are over 30 different elections that are happening around the globe in 2021. Uh, as we've seen, democracy is fragile. It requires constant attention, investment in government capacity, and support from civil society. The Trump administration failed to adequately support democracies abroad, and we reaped democratic retrenchment across the globe in Hungary, Brazil, and others. The Biden administration has an opportunity this year to have a real impact on the future of democracy around the world. And while Secretary Blinken is bringing the State Department back from the swagger disaster, he would be wise to invest early in democracy promotion efforts. All right. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for being our producer and director, and also Max the cat for his uh, first ever podcast. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm-hmm.